210,000 patients succumb from sepsis each year. From the bench to the bedside, do you know how sepsis mortality can be reduced? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Peter W., Professor of Medicine in Pulmonary and Critical Care at Louisiana State University Health Science Center, who is also a professor of surgery at Tulane University. Today we are discussing surviving sepsis, improving mortality with new therapies. Welcome, Dr. W. Well, thanks for having me on, Dr. Johnson. So how did you get involved with sepsis therapy and research anyhow? You know, it's very interesting. My initial training was in emergency medicine, and what I thought the most clever people in the hospital were those people that were working in the ICUs. And so I convinced them to allow me to train in pulmonary critical care medicine. And as a result, I... My goal was then to bring those critical care concepts back to emergency medicine clinicians. So you did an ER residency, and then you went back and did a critical care fellowship? Correct. Very interesting. And then you were continuing on about how you were applying that? Sure. My goal was then to bring those weighty concepts down to emergency medicine practitioners, whether we're talking about sepsis or mechanical ventilation institution or vasopressor use, but bringing those concepts back to emergency medicine clinicians. So first of all, define what you mean by sepsis for us. So we're all talking the same language. The first concept here is one of systemic inflammatory response syndrome, which is SIRS. And SIRS really is a qualifier as two of four of the following, either an aberration in temperature, either temperature greater than 38 or less than 36, or an elevation in pulse greater than 90, or an elevation in respiratory rate greater than 20, or the combination of a leukocytosis, either a white blood cell count greater than 12 or less than 4. So two of four of those following is SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Sepsis is SIRS with a presumed infection. You can then go on and complicate sepsis by having severe sepsis, which is sepsis with end organ injury, either an altered mental status, a low blood pressure, respiratory failure, kidney failure, liver dysfunction, or cell line dysfunction. Now, that's severe sepsis. If we couple sepsis with a very low blood pressure, a systolic blood pressure less than 90, we consider that septic shock. And those really are the myriad of presentations of sepsis, from SIRS to sepsis to severe sepsis to septic shock. Now, how quick can somebody go from one phase of sepsis to the other? I can tell you, I currently have reviewed cases in my own hospital where we've had patients succumb, be absolutely normal. I've gone out fishing. I've had a, a nice day. Within four hours, die due to overwhelming septicemia. So what do we do wrong in the early management of sepsis? Probably quite a few things. Well, there's lots of things. Not so much what do we do wrong. What are our opportunities for an improvement? And so our opportunities of improvement can be broken down into early recognition and consideration of the diagnosis, followed by early institution of antibiotics. So we don't delay in giving broad-spectrum or focused antibiotics towards the pathogen that we think is most likely involved. And so that's very important. And then that's followed very closely by hemodynamic support. So rapid institution of IV fluids, filling the tank, measuring that the tank's full with either a central venous pressure monitoring or the use of bedside ultrasound. And then once the tank is deemed full and if the blood pressure is still low, we would reach for vasopressors. So something like dopamine or norepinephrine. And then following whether the perfusion is adequate by either a lactate measure or what we call a central venous saturation measurement. So from a central line in either the IJ or subclavian approach, measuring from the distal port a saturation. So central venous 
saturation, with the goal being greater than 70%. And so those are our primary measures. And then some secondary measures, or like the lanyap measures or the icing measures, would be maintaining a very good glycemic control, so blood sugars less than 150, making sure if the patient were vasopressor dependent that we considered baseline support for steroids, hydrocortisone therapy, and then the consideration whether the patient was a candidate for activated protein C or Zygris, if you will. But again, those, the, the steroids, the concept of Zygris, the concept of tight glycemic control, are kind of additive measures. The, the science on that is not nearly as robust as the science on early goal-directed therapy with hemodynamic support, early institution of antibiotics, and consideration of the diagnosis. So there's so many things we can talk about, but let's, let's start hitting on a few of them. One you mentioned was fluid management. What are some of the controversies about fluid management in sepsis, and what evidence-based kind of medicine studies have been done to say where to go? Sure. Well, the, the controversies for fluid management are multiple, but some of the top ones, whether you reach for a crystalloid or a colloid, really no benefit of whether or not we're using normal saline versus HESPAN. So no benefit from colloid therapy for most patients. One of the other considerations is early institution of blood product in those patients who are anemic. Again, if your H&H is less than 10 and 30 and you're showing signs of hypoperfusion and hypotension, reaching for blood transfusions early, not late, possibly of benefit in those patients. And then again, making sure that the CVP is somewhere between 8 and 12 in spontaneously breathing patients or greater than 12 in those patients receiving mechanical ventilation. The concept, again, being is the tank full or is it empty? Now, the weaknesses of that design and the weaknesses of the evidence is that we really don't have great evidence supporting central venous pressure monitoring just whether it really equates with a full tank or not. In fact, the evidence probably points in the opposite direction, that it's more or less a scattergram. But surviving sepsis campaign, early goal-directed therapy have really pointed towards that as a measure for tank fullness. So that's the best bet that we have at the moment. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Peter W. from Louisiana State University Health Science Center, and we're discussing surviving sepsis, improving mortality with new therapies. What about vasopressors? What's first line? You know, first line vasopressor, and again, we need to be careful with what we talk about. Vasoactive agents include vasopressors and drugs that actually move the cardiac output. Vasopressors traditionally that we're using in sepsis, the recommendation from surviving sepsis campaign is either norepinephrine or dopamine. And if you look at the evidence, the evidence isn't a slam dunk for one versus the other, but if there's a trend, the trend probably points more towards norepinephrine than dopamine in support of patients who are hypotensive. If we're talking about those patients that have persistent lactic acidosis or persistent SCVO2 less than 70%, the recommendation is to reach for dobutamine. Now, understand this. Dobutamine drives cardiac output, but it really has, you know, I call it the rule of threes. A third of the patients treated with dobutamine will have a small increase in their blood pressure. Mm -hmm. A third will have no change in their blood pressure, and a third will have a small decrease in their blood pressure because dobutamine not only drives cardiac output, but it's also a vasodilator. It stimulates beta-2 receptors, which wind up with vasodilatation. The beta-1 receptors generate an increase in heart rate and an increase in cardiac output. 
So that's, the, that's really the, the lowdown on vasoactive agents in sepsis. So normotensive, high lactate, go with dobutamine. You got it. They get hypotensive, keep the dobutamine and add norepi? Yes, that, that would be my recommendation. And you know, norepi gets a bad rap, kind of um, leave a fed, leave them dead yes, kind of scenario. Those are old days when it was used as a last-ditch effort. Yeah, and in massive amounts. What about ARDS? Can it be prevented? Ooh, you know what? As an emergency medicine clinician, I, I do teaching points on this because when we see patients with acute lung injury in the ED, it's really hard for us to distinguish whether this is ARDS or not because right. ARDS is diffuse lung injury with the exclusion of CHF. So the rule that I like to use is anybody, anybody that comes in with diffuse pulmonary infiltrates that I need to place on mechanical ventilation, I'm going to use low, small tidal volumes. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about 6 cc's per kilogram ideal body weight. So even though your patient's 500 pounds and 5 foot 5, mm-hmm. his tidal volume should be 6 cc's times, you know, See, per 50, kilogram 50 ideal kilos, body weight. 50 kilos, on, they'd get 300 cc's? Well, if he were 50 kilos, ideal, yeah. Because guess what? If you're 5 foot 500 pounds, you're Jabba, right, mm-hmm. versus uh, Tara Lipinski, right, <laughs> world-class figure skater who may be anorectic, who's 5 foot 80 pounds, they have the same size lungs. So the pathophysiology with ARDS, diffuse lung infiltrates, as we push in a tidal volume breath, that's going to the pathway of least resistance. So it's going to healthy lung units. What you don't want to do here is over healthy lung units and injure them. When you flip on your other hat and you're in the critical care unit, it's probably easier for you to get this across to people. But in the ER, where sometimes we do start ventilators, you start putting someone on 300, 400 cc's, and you probably have to give a bit of an explanation with it, correct? Absolutely. And that's why we're changing that behavior. So whether your patient has congestive heart failure, multiple pulmonary contusions, has some exposure to some gas, or has multilobar pneumonia, the concept here is to use smaller tidal volumes, somewhere in the range of 400 cc's, and then wrap respiratory rates, 20 to 30 breaths per minute. Now, we've heard a lot about glucose control in the ICU, and we've had several of those shows on the station. Can you have too much glucose control? Oh, absolutely. If we glean evidence from the studies, tight glycemic control, blood sugars less than 110, actually place your patients at greater risk for hypoglycemia. I mean, profound hypoglycemia, risky hypoglycemia. So they've really backed off this 110 marker, and they've embraced something around the level of 150. So it can be too tight a glycemic control. And the recommendation is, if you're going to use insulin therapy as an IV drip, that those patients are mandated to have feeds, GI feeds or intravenous feeds. So they have a constant caloric intake. Steroids. When do you use them in sepsis, and to what extent have they been proven to affect outcome? And I know that's not a simple question. Right. No, it, it certainly is not. And this has come full circle, because we used to use steroids, mega doses. We backed off, said no steroids are bad. Then we right. began to use steroids again, and they've been called into question. Probably the concept is relative adrenal insufficiency. That's a great concept. So if, in fact, you are hypotensive and require vasopressors to maintain a blood pressure in the 65 to 75 mean arterial blood pressure range, if you're that kind of patient, you might benefit from low-dose steroids. So hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams, given IV, Q6 hours. That tends to be the poster child for steroids, but they don't go to every patient who gets sepsis. And testing for adrenal insufficiency in the unit, is it worth it, or should you just give it? You know what? If you're not sure, you don't wait for test results or anything else. 
you administer it, and then sort it out. Because all of our studies for cortisol levels and cortrosin simulation tests are faulty. They really don't give a picture of adrenal insufficiency. And this is a relative, not absolute, but a relative adrenal insufficiency. Your adrenals have kicked out all that we can, so now we're supplementing that. What about the financial impact of treating sepsis correctly? You know, when you're talking about financial impact, both of early goal-directed therapy, early intervention, and then treating it correctly, you actually have mortality benefits, fewer days in the ICU, and easy institution within systems and hospitals. What it takes, though, is emergency departments to speak with their intensivists so that everybody's on the same page, so that there's no delay in instituting the appropriate therapies. Well, thank you for being our guest today. We've really learned a lot. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you for having me. Our thanks goes to Dr. Peter W., who's been our guest. We've been discussing surviving sepsis, improving mortality with new therapies. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. That's 888-639-6157. Thank you for listening.